0: This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. Value Hive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at Ticker.com forward slash Hive. That's tikr.com forward slash hive. This week, I interview Stephen Clapham. Stephen Clapham has one of the most decorated resumes of any guest I've interviewed. He's traveled Europe as an equity analyst, worked his way up to partnership status at multiple multi billion dollar hedge funds, and now he runs the website Behind the Balance Sheet dedicated to training investment analysts in the art of reading financial statements. Clapham's learned a lot over his tenure as an investment analyst and coach, and he joined the Hive to share his knowledge with us. Along with the podcast, Clapham just finished writing a new book, The Smart Money Method, which listeners can get for one ninety nine on Kindle this Sunday, the 24th, and it's only for one day. Once again... Hive listeners can get this book Kindle on the Kindle version for one ninety nine on Sunday eleven twenty four. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Stephen. All right, Stephen Clapham, it is great to speak to you. Um, I'm super thrilled to dive into your new book and your website and just the stories that you have around your involvement in the hedge fund business, which is quite extensive. So for those who don't know you, who is Stephen Clapham and how did you get started investing?
1: Well, listen, thank you so much for having me on. It's really uh, good fun to, to be here at long last and I'm looking forward to, to the discussion. I mean, I've been doing this for a very long time. And I think like many people, I ended up in an investment industry completely by accident. So when I started um, was at the time of big bang in London when there was deregulation of the financial services industry. And up till then, um, a grammar school boy like me wouldn't have had a hope of getting into the, into the city. But it so happened that I'd been, I'd been working in Holland. I was brought back to London by my boss. I was going to do a big project. The project didn't happen. And I decided I was getting bored and I wanted to do something, something else. And I got a, a very high up job at the time the BOC was the fifth largest company in the UK and I was reporting to the guy reporting to the finance director. I was interviewed by the finance director. So I was just at the start of my career. So this was a big step up and I got a phone call just before I'd given in my notice and the guy I was reporting to said, Oh, the personnel department have made a, pointed out and made a bit of a mistake because we've um, realized that you're too young for this grade. And I said, what, what do you mean I'm too young? And he said, well, you know, this is a very high level job. And you, when, you get, when you pass your next birthday, you'll be, you will automatically get the promotion. But you need to start on a 10% lower salary and a lower company car. Now, I could have lived with a lower salary, but I couldn't live with a lower company car. And I just thought, you know, I don't want to work for a business in which it's so regimented but you've got to be a certain age before you get promoted. But that's what it was like back then. And I was regaling my brother-in-law with this story, and he said, well, why don't you go into the city? And I go, well, how, how would I possibly manage that? He goes, well, I don't know, but my secretary's husband works in the city. I bet you he'll see you, and um, he'll tell you, you know, what sort of thing you might be able to do. So he arranged for me to go and meet this, um, this guy, a guy's named Bob Carl, who at the time was the head of research, at Horgavet, which was the number five broker in the UK. And I just went along to have a cup of coffee and a chat to understand, you know, how the city worked and what sort of job I could do. And at the end of my sort of hour, he offered me a job. And I thought, whoa, you know, I went in and had a couple more interviews. And and then I started. And I started as as an equity analyst. And actually, I did a slightly weird job because I sat in the research department, but I did corporate finance work. So I did, I was a research analyst for the corporate finance department. So I did some really, really interesting work. I did a lot of privatization work. So I started off as a Southside analyst and, you know, I just started off as a rookie and I, I earned my spurs.
0: Was there anything, whether it was books or just other mentors that got you started, you know, almost, almost piqued your interest in this or was this, or, or, or was, you know, equity research and investing always something that you've wanted to do?
1: No, I, I, I didn't know anything about it. I mean, I, I couldn't have told you what a PE ratio was. I knew that much, right? Yeah. I, I, trained, I trained as an accountant. I then became a management consultant. And the stock market was a complete mystery to me. There was a great book series um, when I was a kid called um, Billy Bunter. And Billy Bunter was a, a fat kid who was always eating too much and, and trying to borrow money because his dad was a stockbroker. And I always wondered what the bulls and bears were. You know, it was a book when I was a kid, talked about it. But the, the stock market, was it wasn't accessible as it is today. You know, yeah. when I started it, when I started at Horgavet, it was a very established uh, broking firm. But if you, on the sales desk, the, if, you were, if you had not been to Eason and not served in the Guards, which is kind of a, a traditional way of coming up into the city, you were in the minority. Most of the salesmen were were ex-soldiers. I mean, they were all very effective, very disciplined and, and good at their job. But that was the, there was a standard route. And so I had never, it wasn't that I thought, oh man, I want to be an equity analyst. It was just that Bob made the job sound really fun and interesting. And it was something that I could, something that I could do. And it turned out I was actually very good at it. My love of investing came after I started in the job. I didn't, you know, spend all my time thinking, oh, I wish I could be an equity analyst. I didn't even know what an equity analyst was.
0: Yeah, that's crazy. So what were, what were some of the first industries or sectors they had you cover there? Or were you even sector specific? Were you more just a generalist?
1: They, they, they brought me in to do the privatization of British Gas. And the reason they did that was privatization. This was just in the early days of privatization. And they, what they found was that privatizations absorbed a huge amount of the sector analyst's time. And the, their oil analyst um, then was a guy called John Tolster, who was the number one oil analyst. And he was a genius at gauging the oil price. And this is the mid-80s, when the oil price moved a lot. And yeah. it was a really, really profitable sector for the firm. So they didn't want him going off and doing all this corporate finance privatization work. They wanted to get somebody in new, fresh, and nobody knew anything about the gas industry. And so I came in, and because the the privatization wasn't going to happen for another 12 months, they assigned me to the chairman of Horgevet, Richard Westmacott, who was one of the two leading guys in the city, Hmm. and I used to be Westmacott's boy. If he had a project, he used to get me along. I he was a really, really odd guy. You know, it was torture. If you got in the lift with the chairman, the, the lift just seemed to go so slowly because he could, you know, he would mix happily with Margaret Thatcher and industry leaders, but he couldn't talk to you in the lift. It was the, it was the most bizarre guy. And he he had me doing a huge range of things. So I got involved in pitching for all the the utility privatizations and um, it, it was quite weird we um, I got a call that I had to go with them to a meeting and you know you didn't in those days you didn't ask questions now, the chairman says you need to be in his car at 9:35 you got in the car at 9:35 and you waited until we explained what the meeting was about right and I got in the car and he didn't speak to me and we went to this meeting and we're there beforehand. I said, Richard, why are we here? And he said, well, we're, we're here. We're, we're going to talk to this um, gentleman who's the chairman of the, of a subsidiary of a French um, utility, and you're going to tell him um, some of the questions, you're going to answer some of the questions about the water industry. And I said, oh, okay. I'm thinking it'd be quite helpful to have known this beforehand, so I could kind of brief myself, brought some notes, uh, but, um, He didn't bother with that. And then he introduced me to the guy and he said, now we think you should bid for the Northwest water and Steve's going to explain why. (laughs) And he (laughs) handed over to me and I sort of looked at him-
0: With no notes. (laughs) Followed
1: and then explained what the attractions of the business were. When we came out of the meeting and we were in the car, I said, Chairman, that was really difficult. Why did you not tell me what I was going to talk about? He goes, well, Steve, you've got to learn to think in your feet. <laughs> and that was just... And I, I kind of looked at him, and I thought, well, what happened if I completely screwed it up? And he just thought, well, if you completely screwed it up, you would completely, you know, I would have rescued it, don't, you know. <laughs> and it was... I mean, the, 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 the gap then between us and Americans was very pronounced. So Goldman Sachs opened their office in London around this time. And in fact, they poached my boss, the head of research, because mm. Bob had moved up, Bob had been promoted. They, they, they poached my boss. And um, we were doing the privatization. We were doing a flotation, rather. And um, Goldman's were on the, on the same ticket. And one of the corporate financiers said to me, he said, it was amazing. You know, the, the, They asked the question, the company asked the question about the valuation of a particular sector. And we were sort of looking around, trying to dig out some information. The next meeting, the next day, Goldman's had a 40 page pitch deck with information that we couldn't, we didn't even know. I mean, we, you know, if we'd, we'd taken a week, we couldn't have done that. And it, we were just the amateurs. And no. the whole of the UK broking market had to, you know, step up its game because the Americans were infinitely, infinitely superior at the, had all the data. And, it, you know, th- this is a long time ago. When I, was brought into the office on my first day, and I was shown to my desk. Um, The desk had a key and lamp system, which is a a way of answering 10 different phone lines. And I turned around to Bob and said, "Um, do I not get a computer? And he said, well, do you know how to work a computer? I said, yeah, of course. He said, "Um, what type of computer would you like? And I said, well, could I please have an IBM PC? And he picked up the internal phone book, which was on the desk, and he said, from this guy what sort of computers do you say you want? Yeah. Tell them you want 4 IBM PCs and you're in charge of computer training. <laughs> I've only been there 10 minutes, you know. I mean Yeah. That, but that was that was how it was done then.
0: Wow. That's awesome. Different so world. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's 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 a different world. I mean it's exciting, but it's also kind of scary I guess at that point.
1: Well, well it was I I mean it, it was very funny because We were the number five broking firm. I'm sure that other big firms were no different from us. And I remember turning around to the guy behind me who was covering Hanson. And Hanson had bid for Imperial Tobacco. And it was quite a complicated transaction because you could either take all stock, the stock plus a convertible, or a loan note. So in those days, there wasn't a Bloomberg terminal that would automatically... I think they have told you what the arbitrage terms were. you had to work it out. So this guy was handwriting on a, on a sheet of A4 yeah. landscape <laughs> all the imperial share prices down the, the one side and all the Hansen stock and convertible prices along the top and giving you conversion factors so you knew which side to go on. And I said to him I said I can do that in a spreadsheet. It won't take me five minutes. why don't I do it for you?" And he goes, no no, I'd rather do it like this He'd rather and so I just did it for him anyway, and I gave him I gave him the sheet, but he preferred to trust his own hand calculated yeah. numbers than use the computer. Wow. Yeah, I mean it's I'm not that old. It's not that
0: <laughs> long ago. <laughs> that's 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 crazy. Um so at what point do you switch? Because one of the one of the big parts of your career, I guess, is Um, the fact that you've worked at a lot of different hedge funds and most notably one of the bigger ones is you've worked for a tiger cub and so you know I know you don't have to go into too specifics on kind of you know what tiger cub it was and what firm it was but just talk to us about the allure of working with a tiger cub because I know you see all these stories and it's almost as if tiger cubs are in this illustrious uh, holier-than-thou bucket of hedge funds but talk to us about kind of your day-to-day there and maybe some cool stories that you have from that
1: yeah, sure. I mean, you know, I, I was on, on the South Side for about 15 years, and latterly I, um, I, did, I basically had a small club of clients. I, I didn't like working for big firms because they're very regimented. You know, you've got to produce lots of results notes and monthly notes and, and maintenance research, and I had no interest in doing that. I, I used to write very few published notes, but I used to write if I thought something was very cheap or very dear. And I was actually, you know, known for writing sell notes because I didn't really m- mind writing a sell note because the companies didn't like me anyway because I was always picking holes in their accounts and right. So I, you know, I wasn't popular as a sell side analyst amongst the corporates. And um, so the, writing a sell note didn't bother me. And so what I used to do was I had a group of about twenty main clients, and those were a group of the early hedge funds in London, um, people like Fidelity who where the analysts were very strongly rewarded on their performance and people who were really interested in, in making money. And um, I had this small group of people and then one day I, I got a phone call saying, and I, I mean, it's a master of public record. I used to work for Tosca Fund. So I was a partner at Tosca and um, Martin Hughes called me, who was a client of, of a firm, called me up and he said, um, can you come around and we need a bit of a strategy meeting. And I said, Martin, look, I'm, I'm you know, I'm pretty busy. I've just was around to see you two weeks ago. You know, what, what, what is it? Can you not do it over the phone? And he said, look, um, I need to, I need to talk to you. I said, okay, look, do you mind if I stop by my way home because I've got to drive past your office anyway? He said, no, that's fine. So I, I, I rolled up and, um, went into the office, and um, there was nobody there. And the secretary said, oh, they're expecting you. They're downstairs in the pub. So I went down to the pub, and Martin offered me a job. And I was, you know, I was wow. quite shocked. But, I didn't, you know, I, I, he didn't give me any inkling that he wanted to offer me a job. And Tosca at the time was the largest financials hedge fund in the world, and Martin had been doing more stuff outside the financial area. And so he wanted somebody to, to, to devote themselves to that, the non-financial stuff. So my role was really special situations investing. And it was the most fantastic eye-opening experience. I mean, the, you know, the, the team were very nice, very friendly, very professional, and as you would expect. And, but very down to earth, you know, surprisingly, when you think that this was a massive hedge fund. Um, and what I was amazed about was, you know, how much fun investing was. Because I was used to the sell side and yep. the sell side you spend half your time marketing and you know I'm an analyst I'm not a salesperson. I'm not a marketing person so you know that I mean fortunately as a sell side analyst you're kind of selling yourself you're selling your ideas so it's not like a job where you're trying to sell double blazing or yeah. a product you don't believe in yeah. you've got to believe in your own product otherwise you can't sell it obviously but the, 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 the wonderful thing about going to the buy side was that the world literally was my oyster mm-hmm. because it was a global fund and they didn't care where you found your ideas. If you found an idea in New Zealand, that was just as valuable as an idea in France or United mm-hmm. States. And so, you know, I basically scoured the world looking for the best risk reward opportunities. And the, the wonderful thing about it was that I got to spend as much time as I needed to develop an idea. So often, you know, I would say, oh, I think this is a really interesting stock. And I would go away and I would spend six weeks. I would say, go away, I'll be at my desk. Yeah. I would spend six weeks looking into a new idea. I'd obviously be watching the, you know, the existing stocks in the portfolio and I'd be watching the watch list. But when I started to look at something, I would dig into it extremely deeply. And, you know, we'd go read through the accounts, cover to cover, read every single note, not just for one year, but going back. So, you know, our idea was that when we invested in something, we knew more than anybody else in the market. We obviously didn't know more than the people in the company or people in the industry, but there would have been, you know, a few other really real specialists that would have followed the company for many years. But... um, One of the opportunities there is, when you're in that situation, is with something like an IPO. Because if you find an IPO coming to the market, nobody in the stock market knows anything about it. Yep. So there's a real information asymmetry. You know, people spend all their time in the stock market looking for an information advantage. And it's pretty futile, because, you know, the world's got more or less perfect information dissemination. So you've got to do a huge amount of work. And so it's only the biggest hedge funds that can afford to have a really um, dedicated analyst spending a lot of time digging deeply to find that information advantage. Right. And an IPO is a brilliant opportunity because the vast majority of funds, the analysts are very stretched. They're following too many companies. We followed a more restricted group of companies, but followed them very deeply. So when an IPO would come to the market, if we thought it might be interesting, I could spend, you know, as as long as it was required. And, you know, we were looking at uh, IPOs where I can remember one of the prospectuses was over a thousand pages. And you know, who's going to read that, right? Right. Um, but we read it because, you know, we thought there would be some nuggets of information available in here and we can we can dig into it. And um we really had uh you know an outstanding um performance on on the back of that and martin was you know a genius investor he just had the most brilliant nose for a good story for a good idea
0: Hmm. wow that's awesome and it's 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 funny you mention ipos because it seems as if the u.s ipo market at least for the most part is a bit overfished right where you've got someone releases an s1 filing and there's dozens and dozens of people that have newsletters that are you know specified for s ones but if you go outside the us and you look at european markets or some of these other lesser known markets and you look at their ipos it really hits the nail on the head you could be one of the only people that are actually looking at something like this at least on trading day one or you know a few weeks before the ipo
1: well i mean the rules have changed here because now if you're if you're doing an IPO. You've you've got to release information to a wider group beyond the immediate syndicate. So it, the idea is that there's more perfect information available to, to the market at large rather than just the syndicate involved in placing the deal. But the, you know, with all due respect to the to the the, the bloggers out there, I mean, some really brilliant bloggers. Uh, and you know, one of, one of my colleagues has got the most fantastic blog. But um, how many of them have got the time to pour in detail through the prospectus? None of them will have access to the, the circle of research that's produced by the brokers to the, to the issue. You know, so you've got a huge advantage. If you're sitting in a big hedge fund, you've got access to all the broker's research. You've probably had a meeting with one or two of the analysts that are involved in the deal. You've got the prospectus. You've got the opportunity to go and meet you know whichever competitor or or, you know however else you want to verify um the deal and it it gives you a very very good um opportunity so that you know the the ipo market i think is particularly interesting because ipos go one of two ways the ipos the ones that are really popular go through the roof aren't perversely aren't that interesting because if they're that popular you don't get any stock yeah so it's not worthwhile doing the work because you know if you're only going to get a few million dollars of stock it doesn't matter if it doubles if you made you might have made five million dollars but you know that's when you're in a a multi-billion dollar fund five million dollars is you know it's just a rounding error right so yeah. you, you know you're not going to do you're not going to worry about five million dollars doing enough work to, to make the fund five million dollars. Obviously, it's a lot of money, yeah. and obviously the five million dollars, twenty percent of it is our fee, right? So the five million dollars, if you lose five million dollars, is one million dollar off the off the fee pool. Yeah, but the 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 fact is that you're running a big fund. You're you have to go after bigger game and popular IPOs less interesting. The unpopular ones are the ones that are interesting because if you can find an unpopular IPO, that is a good deal, then not only can get stock at a time, but you usually get stock afterwards. So if you can find something that you've got, you have high confidence, that's going to be a much higher price in 12 or 18 months time, that's a really good opportunity. And so um, perversely, the really popular IPOs would be more interesting from the perspective of would you be interested in shorting them? Because a lot of the really hyped stuff, it goes to just a stupid price. And then yeah. if, if it misses, you know, the first set of earnings, if it misses, the thing just implodes. So those can be quite those can be quite good short opportunities, actually.
0: Yeah. And I remember watching when Snowflake went public and there was that whole ordeal of Berkshire buying a bunch pre-IPO. And just to watch that price action where it just straight up and then closed, you know, re- relative low. now it's kind of at the low of its range, which, 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 which is interesting. But do, do you have any uh, examples of these broken IPOs from your research days or from your days at a hedge fund where you guys, you know, found something interesting and took advantage of that?
1: Well, I mean, there, there were a whole long list of IPOs where there were, there- they were overhyped. I mean yeah. a lot of the Indian ones, um, Indian ones are a bit difficult because in India you can't short the stock until all the stock's been registered. So mm. it's actually really quite difficult to create a short on the day. So, you know, you I mean, I had one where where the analyst came in and he, you know, he was sort of I his attitude was, I should be very grateful that he granted me an audience. And, you know, I'm sitting there thinking, well, why have you got this attitude? And I started asking him a few questions. And it was apparent he knew nothing about the business. I mean, mm-hmm. he, he just absolutely clueless. And this thing had a huge amount of hype. And um, we spent quite a long time trying to figure out if we could create a synthetic short. And right. in fact, we couldn't. We had to wait until we had to wait a few weeks until the stock all got settled, and, and before we could put the short on. But you know, these these um, opportunities are, are great because it's a level playing field. Whenever you're going into, and particularly if you're going into a new sector, or a new geography, and you're going in to buy a stock or sell a stock, you're always wondering who's on the other side of the trade. Yeah. Because if you're buying it. From someone else? Why are they selling it? And how long have they held it? How smart are they? Do they know more? Do they know something you don't know? You've always got that question in the back of your mind. IPO, highly unlikely that the person on the other side of the trade knows more about it than you do. That's why I think, you know, from a research analyst point of view, these things are very, very interesting. Mm -hmm. And of course, today, you've got a whole different dynamic, because you've got all these companies that have been in the public spotlight, albeit not disclosing financial information, but you can follow. So you could have been following Airbnb as an analyst for the last three years, waiting for the IPO. Yeah. So there's, a, there's another dimension to it. and um, Quite funny because Airbnb, obviously they filed yesterday and I don't know if that was their first quarterly profit ever. I joked I have on no the Twitter that this was, this was how lucky to report a quarterly profit just before you're doing the IPO. How unusual. I well, <laughs> well, think Airbnb like is actually Tesla. a really interesting business. So I'm going to be looking at that one with some interest.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's going, to be, it's going to be very interesting. And this is actually a great point in time in the conversation to dive into your new book. And I know that maybe we're going to cover, um, you know, kind of how you switch from hedge fund partner to training analyst. But I think we can cover that. Towards towards the end, because um, right now we're really talking about research and different different stock ideas and stuff. So, let's just dive right into your latest book. Um, I picked up. You were gracious enough to send me a copy. It's an incredible book. Um, it looks looks sharp and it reads real well. It's it's honestly one of those books where you can pick it up and you can read it in a day. And I think I've you know I think I read ninety percent of it. Um, you know when it when it when it got to me. So talk to us about the reason behind writing this book, and maybe some interesting things you learned along the way from putting all your thoughts down that you've known from decades down on paper for the first time.
1: Well, I'm, I'm delighted that you enjoyed it. I, I don't know, <laughs> I've just been finished reading Morgan Housel's book, The Psychology of Money. And honestly, I would never have written my book if I'd, if I'd read that first, because <laughs> it's so brilliantly written. and. You think, man, I can't write nearly as well as that. But the, the idea behind it was that, you know, I've spent all these years, decades as an equity analyst, and I've picked up a lot of tricks. Because you do, you know, you work out how to do things better. And I, I just had the idea, you know, I've got the training business where I try and help both professional investors and private investors improve their, their investing skills I just had the idea that this was a good thing good thing to do because I thought people would be interested in it, be able to help people. And, um, you know, I, so I thought, well, what's the best way of doing this? And I thought the best way of doing it was just to take the idea of how do you get something in your portfolio? So I just went through kind of the life cycle of an investment. So starting off with how do you find an idea? And then go through the process of testing the hypothesis, starting to look, is it a quality business? Do you understand the industry? Then drilling down to do understand the company, and then looking at the management, the strategy, and then you know, going through the financial statements, how to value the business. And um, and then I just thought, well, okay, that's where most people stop, but actually, you know. As a private investor, I teach my private investors that when you are going to buy a, a, a stock, you should write down why. Yeah. Now, I'm not saying you should do a full blown research note, but what I found is that writing a research note actually makes sure that the idea is a good one because you've got to tick all the boxes. You, and by writing it down, your thought processes are much, much clearer. So yeah. I encourage my, my private investors in my online school to actually write a note. And um, so I talk about that. And then, you know, I go through, you know, how do you communicate the idea yeah. and then how do you maintain a portfolio? So how do you decide this stock's complementary to the rest of my portfolio? Because, you, you know, and I talk about diversification of the portfolio. And then I go through what, and then how do you, how do you manage the portfolio day to day? So obviously, if you're a private investor, you're not doing it minute to minute day to day as you are as a professional investor. But just you know, how do you how do you monitor the portfolio? How do you monitor macroeconomic events? What how do you do that? And then I just had a thing about um, you know looking forward, little talk about disruption. And then I added a chapter on COVID because I was just finishing the book off in April time, and I just thought well. I don't know how this is going to pan out, but I should just put down some thoughts because that will make it more relevant. I didn't think we would, you know, a few months later, before the book would be out, we'd have a vaccine. I didn't think we'd be of a second lockdown. I didn't anticipate that. Yeah. And I didn't anticipate how sharply we would have been coming. We would have been recovering or certainly in the United States. I'm not sure. So it's, we're, we're enjoying such a sharp recovery in the United Kingdom.
0: Right. And it's, it was it was it was interesting because it's almost this book this book is great because you give a good overview of kind of everything an investor needs to get started from someone from your perspective that's been in the industry it's not it's not necessarily deep dives into all these topics but it's hey here's what you need to know about this 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 and this and one of the parts about the book that i really liked is this idea that we all have a certain amount of time and one of the things from your perspective that was important to you is allocating time to certain research ideas and knowing when to say no to an idea right because you can research it, you you can you can research an idea and if you spend you know days weeks on it and you realize that it's a dud and it's something that maybe you could have found out was a dud on day 1 it's almost like wasted time so talk to us about some of the tips and tricks that you use to protect your time when it comes to researching and ranking new stock ideas
1: yeah, it's funny you should ask that, because when I started in the city, um, the guy I was sitting next to was a, you know, very funny guy, and he was complaining about the fact that, you know, lunches had been shortened. When I joined, I was, um, I was taken out for lunch by the box head. There was myself and a, a, another guy who just started, Jeremy, a South African guy and we were taken out for lunch on a friday to the wine bar across the road from the office and we had three bottles of wine if i remember correctly two bo- two, bo- two bottles of claret three bottles of claret, i've forgotten after the after the first bottle i was really struggling and that was the, that was what people did they you know if you didn't have a half bottle of wine at lunchtime that that w- was not a good lunch <laughs> and um, you know people find this hard hard to believe in the in the broken dining room there was a decanter of port on the sideboard they used to pass the port with the cigars after dinner but the the this idea of time i was very puzzled because nobody seemed to plan anything and Mm. i'd come from an environment where I i was a management consultant where we were trying to get things done and we would spend one day a week planning because if you don't plan, you don't execute, you know. So you've got you know a, a set of deadlines, and you're trying to get people to do things. And I carried on that that tradition because I realised that if you don't plan, you don't get anything done. And people looked at me and said, "Well, you can't plan in the stock market because you don't know what's going to happen." And I thought, "Well, that yeah, of course you don't know what's going to happen, but you can plan, and if nothing." That you don't expect happens, you'll be able to execute the plan. And if something that you don't expect happens, you'll just change the plan. Yeah. And um, I find this to be quite interesting talking to um, people on this on the buy side, because it was the same thing. No planning. You know, we just come in and we react to what happens in the stock market. And we we just try and do our job. And I know that's actually really stupid because what you need to do is you need to say, I've got a finite amount of time this year. And my job is to maximize the amount of profit that the portfolio makes in my area, in the Mm -hmm. areas I'm responsible for, at the least amount of risk. So what I want to do is I want to make sure I'm not wasting my time on stocks that the portfolio manager is not going to put in the portfolio. Because if he doesn't like the idea, it's never going to go portfolio, it doesn't matter how good an idea is, it's never going to go in the portfolio. So guess what? it's a good idea to check with a PM that, I, that if, you, if you convince him, he'll do it. And I was talking to a guy at another very large and extremely successful hedge fund. Um, and he'd, um, he'd suggested to his boss a, a, a stock, I actually owned PA at the time, and um, the boss wouldn't, wouldn't deal in it because there wasn't enough liquidity. And he'd done a huge amount of work, and he presented the idea, and within five minutes, he was sent out in his ear. And are like, well, what's the, you've spent all that time, and it's complete waste. So what you've got to do, and I think that this is true whether you're a professional analyst, a professional portfolio manager, or whether you're a private investor managing your own portfolio, you've got to go for the ideas that will give you the maximum reward per unit of time put in. So go for easy ideas. Now, obviously, if you're at a big hedge fund, you're not there to make 10%, right? I mean, you you know, going to your boss and saying we should deploy X million dollars, tens of millions of dollars in an idea for 10%, that isn't going to wash. So you've got to have an idea that is capable of a 50%, a double, a treble over a 18, 24, 36-month period. Whatever the, whatever the constraint is. And different funds I've worked with have had different constraints. But the, the the important thing is to spend the time on the easiest idea. You never know at the start, right? You don't know how long it's going to take you. That's a, a, because, you know, it can take you longer than you think. And you don't know how much the stock's going to go up. But that, what I do at the outset is I say, okay, I've got 10 stocks in my watch list. How much opportunity is there in each stock and how long do I think it will take and I I generally will do the easiest one with first provided it meets the the return threshold Yep. and that's a that's a very simple philosophy but it's a very is a very effective way of managing your time and that's what we used to do when I'm you know when I had a team of analysts it was the same thing you know that if you were an analyst you could do whatever you wanted but we always discussed each week, what everybody was doing, and what the, where were the opportunities, because you didn't want people to be going off spending time on something that wouldn't fit with the time that other people were spending, you know, so you might end up with five ideas over the next six weeks, you don't want them all to be in the same sector, or all in the same geography, or, you know, so, mm-hmm. you, you know, we you try to plan ahead and think ahead.
0: You mentioned, start with the easy ideas first what constitutes an easy idea for you? Is it something quantitative or is it more qualitative and maybe kind of walk us through how you define easy ideas?
1: Um, Well, I mean, easy in terms of time, you know, one of the things I would look at, so one of my um, constraints would be, okay, so if this is a a stock that's um, located in Asia, all the competitors are in Asia, all the suppliers are in Asia, um, all the customers are in Asia and I'm not going to Asia for three months, I might not do that first. I might wait and do that before I'm going to Asia because it'll make much more sense for me there. Or similarly, you know, if I'm going to America, should I be thinking about looking at the American ideas now? Mm-hmm. But the easiness of it is relates to the complexity of the stock, the complexity of the industry, have I done it before, you know? It's much easier to look at an industry that you've that you that you've looked at before, but often I will be looking at companies in new industries or companies in new geographies. And, you know, one example of, of one where I just decided it was too difficult was the semiconductor industry. So not that long ago, I was looking at semiconductors and I knew they would go up because there was all this interest in automated vehicles, the Internet of Things. And, you know, I kind of knew that semiconductors went into them. But I found it quite a technical sector and quite difficult to understand the technicalities of it. And I was talking to a pal of mine who was at another big hedge fund. And I said to him, have you, do you own any of this stuff? And he said, yeah. He said, um, I said, because I'm struggling with the, you know, how do I get, how do I understand the, 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 the technological side and he said well why don't you come around and have a cup of coffee with me and i'll introduce you to an analyst an analyst the young guy is really good in this, all this stuff and i went around had a cup of coffee and the analyst started to go through the the industry and explain how it all worked and he was talking just he could have been talking dutch well actually i speak a bit of dutch he could be talking german or you know swahili i you know i just thought you know i do not understand what this guy is saying And that is an example of a, you know, I just thought, you know, I could spend quite a bit of time looking at this, but I'm not sure that after spending a month immersing myself in this industry, I'm going to be any, I'm really going to be any the wiser. So instead of doing that, I might go for something, you know, a UK house builder, where actually I know the industry inside out, and there might not be quite the same opportunity for gain, but I can, I can get a better return on my time. Right. you know, that's, I mean, you, you, you for a, goal, a double, but you, you know, you're doing something that, you know, what you're doing it's always, you're always more reluctant to size a position large. If you feel you don't know what you're doing, hmm. you know, if yeah. you feel, Oh, I, I don't really feel comfortable that I understand the technology here. What are the technological risks? You're not going to take as big a position. So the fact that the stock may appreciate by more, it may not maximize the, the opportunity for the fund relative to something that doesn't go up as much, but you can take a you can, you're more confident about it, you take a a bigger position. So that's the way I, I had to think about it. Maximize the profit per per hour.
0: Yeah, I like that. Now, did you have any stories or you know, war stories about buying into companies where you didn't necessarily feel comfortable with and then the stock went. Against you in a major way, or you know any 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 of these big losers that kind of help cement um, your idea and your and your philosophy of finding easy ideas.
1: <clears throat> well, even the easy ideas go down, right? Yeah. I mean, that <laughs> you know, um, t- timing. If you're in the, the the, it's different. If you're a private investor, you can time. If you're in a big fund deploying you know very large sums of money you know if you're in a big fund you can be d- deploying in excess of a hundred million dollars in an idea if you just think about the maths right if you've got you know a five or ten billion dollar fund and you want to have fifty positions you've got to have you know a couple of hundred million dollars in each idea yep. and if that if that if you're in that situation then you've got a much different, different problem because you've got to be early. You can't hope of buying at the bottom. You've got to be buying on the way down before the thing turns. And yeah, you might be, you might be buying something that's going up, but it's very difficult unless it's a really liquid, really large stock. It's really difficult to buy in size mm-hmm. when a stock's already moving because you push the price against you. Um, obviously it depends on the size of the company and and so on. And, and, you know, obviously we've got trillion dollar companies today, which we didn't have 10 years ago. Right. Um, but the, 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 the simple rule is that if you're early, you're going to be wrong because, you know, you've got no idea until it turns, you know, you might, I, I would be looking at a situation where I was very confident that the next year's profit estimates would be significantly higher than the market consensus. That's my modus operandi, right? I think in the next three years, this stock will easily double because the consensus earnings estimates for the one year ad are 30, 40, 50% too low. And you know if, if, it, if it's wrong by that order of magnitude, you're highly likely to make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. But you're sitting here and it might be a year before the consensus estimates start to change. So yeah. you and you can't finesse that. You you've got the idea, you know why the estimates are wrong, and there can be a range of reasons for that. And you've then got to put your chips on the table. And often, I mean, I wish it I wish it had only happened once, but I I mean I can remember one occasion where we bought a position in a stock and it went down 20 percent in 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 weeks Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and you know i at this point you're really quite concerned because you know you've got to then retest your hypothesis make sure you know because you could have made a mistake right and so i always laugh about people that say oh they can predict the stock price the value to within five percent i never believed that you know the stock price can move around quite a lot. And, um, you know, with something like that, I mean, I wish that I, it only happened once, but I can tell you that it's more than one occasion I had to get on an airplane and go and see the management of the company to make sure that I was comfortable that I hadn't missed something. But, yeah. you know, that, that that's what happens, right? And um, being 20% offside, not an unusual circumstance in my experience that particular the one in particular i'm thinking about was a bit of a disaster because the plane um i took to fly i had to see the company got cancelled and uh, you know my whole schedule got uh, terribly messed up and i was just you know you just i arrived at the airport and the taxi driver didn't know where the hotel was you know you're thinking man how how is this possible i've had a very long day please i've got you know and um you think this is this stock, this, this investment is going to end in tears. Because some investments just have that ring of bad luck about them. That particular one, we ended up um, increasing our position um, at the lower level and it went up um, over 50% in the next few months. So just, you know, one of these things, we, you know, we made a, a, a lot of money in quite a short space of time, fortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you can't, You know, the stock market is a funny thing. You can't predict when it's going to re-rate a stock. You can predict that it will do, but it can do all sorts of things in the meantime. You can be absolutely right, but very wrong in the short term. And, of course, that's much more dangerous than shorts because in shorts you end up getting stopped up. It's not not so much of a problem with longs because if you hold your nerve, you can increase your stake or at least hold on to your stake but with shorts, you end up having to close.
0: Right. Now you mentioned earlier that you, your background was in accounting and you were an accountant and a lot of these, um, a lot of these things towards the end of your book or just towards, you know, kind of this, this middle portion about, finding ideas, and then red teaming ideas where you're trying to find, you know, ways where you can be wrong. A lot of it involves what you call shady accounting and just trying to avoid dying companies. And I want to spend a good amount of time now talking about these intricate accounting um, mechanisms that a lot of investors tend to overlook if they don't have necessarily an accounting background. And it's one thing that I've had to reinforce myself and I've had to talk to people way smarter than me that have had to tell me like, hey, look at accounts receivables, look at inventories, look at the change in those, look at the rise in those, and those will tell you things that you can't see otherwise. And it reminds me of a book, and I'm looking at it right now. Uh, Quality of earnings by I think Tommy. And- glove. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Glove. And. Yeah, it's uh, good book. Yeah. And it just, it just, that, that section of your book reminded me of that. So if you want to take our listeners kind of on a journey on what to, what to look for in terms of shady accounting, um, you know, just some simple stuff that, that they can find real easy to tell if a business is healthy or not.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, my three top, um, my three top tips, if you like, the red flags in accounting. And I've got a whole series of these. I mean, I'm doing a series of 10. Um, Accounting Red Flags, I've called them. So on my website, you can sign up for the newsletter, which is not as regular as it should be, but we'll hopefully sort that out next year. And we've got what we call a club. And in the club, there's a free training area and we're putting up, and we will be doing over the next few months, um, a set of 10 videos on Accounting Red Flags. And the three most important ones, I think, are working capital, margin comparisons and cash flow so the the first one working capital um almost every fraud that I've looked at and you know I do a forensic accounting course for my institutional clients it's been an incredibly popular course over 300 people have taken it since it started about two years ago and the working capital ratios every single fraud had a signal from the working capital because if you're if you're going to cheat, generally what people do is they'll do either some faking of revenues or bringing revenues forward. And if if you do that, your your debtor days will be affected. Your debtor days will be boosted. The other thing that stands out is that you see often see inventory issues. So if you want to overstate your profits, the simplest way of doing that is to overstate your inventory. And again, that will show up as a as a, a working capital ratio. Mm-hmm. And various different tricks can be can be ascertained from the creditors ratio. And just looking at the collection cycle, you know, the difference between the debtor days plus the inventory days, less the, the, the creditor days, just looking at that progression over time can inform you quite significantly about the cash generative abilities of the business, which then goes back to the comparison of cash flow against earnings, which was the third one I mentioned, looking at, is the business reporting high earnings? Well, it should be reporting high cash flows. And is there a difference between the, you know, the relationship between cash flow and earnings over time? Because often what you see is the company starts to, you know, it starts off as a straightforward, ordinary business, no cheating. Mm-hmm. And then gradually the management start to cheat because they want to make a bonus or whatever. And what you then see is that cash conversion starts to deteriorate. Hmm. And if you look at that, you can say, well, hang on a second, this business isn't as good as it was three years ago. And that should be a, a, a warning signal. Another one, the, the second one I mentioned was the margin comparison. Every single fraud that I looked at for my forensic accounting course, every single one had margins which were higher than its peers. Because if you're trying to inflate your earnings, yes, you can make up some revenues, but it's also easier to reduce your expenses and inflate your margins. So looking at the margins versus the peers, and I do this in a number of different ways. I don't just look at the peers in the sector, but I look at international peers. I look at subsidiaries of quoted companies or divisions of quoted companies, I'll look at unquoted businesses. So in the UK, every company has to file accounts. So if you want to look at um, a UK company versus peer group, you can create a whole unquoted peer group. And this hmm. idea of if the margins are better than the peers, why is that? Yeah. You know, sometimes there can be a very good reason for that. If you look at some a stock like TSMC and semiconductor industry, its margins are way higher than its Asian peer group. But then if you look at the value of R&D, so you look at the absolute dollars it spends in R&D, it spends about seven or eight times its closest peers. So there's a reason, you know, you, you then say, okay, the margins are very high, but I know why they're very high. I've got a justification for them. And it's when you don't have that justification, you, th- you should be worried. And, you know, making money in the stock market the, the first rule is don't lose money you know so if you're worried just you you know I always say look there's a bus comes along every day in the stock market you know you don't need to get on this bus you can wait for the next one to come along and it's so true you know you you know the number of things that I've missed but if you just hang around there'll be some you know be an equally good opportunity comes along and you don't have to fire every bullet
0: yeah no i I I love that. And you mentioned that you found a lot of ideas and a lot of examples for your forensic accounting class. Can you give us maybe an insight into one of these examples that are, you know, right off, right off the top of your head where you found a company and you said, hey, look, this is what they did. And this is why they ended up being a fraud.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, the, the one, that I, I, you know, I've got lots of examples, the, the chorus, I mean, uh, I've had to take examples out of the chorus, but I've got something like, 200 examples in my library. Wow. And I can't, you know, I don't have enough time to do them all. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I get I get quite a lot of ideas from work that I do from institutional clients. So I still do um, research projects. I do bespoke research. So a client will come to me and say, can you have a look at Hutchinson Whampoa?" one of my big clients asked quite recently? and um, you know, when I looked at Hutchson, I came up with all, I mean, all sorts of things that they were doing wrong. But the example I normally give is Patisserie Valerie, which is a coffee chain in the UK, which went bust. And it was a very popular company because its founder or its owner, executive chairman, Luke Johnson, has been a very successful entrepreneur. He's got a private equity firm. He's got a column in the Sunday Times business section, big business newspaper in the UK. And... Um, you know, the the idea was that he was going to roll out the format across the country. So it was a relatively small number of stores, but it was going to grow by, or or grow organically, Mm -hmm. or indeed possibly by acquisition. And it it turned out to be a fraud. And it turned out that the executive chairman um, had put so much pressure on his finance director, his finance director had started to make up the numbers, which, you know, just, I mean, we don't know the whole ins and outs of it. But the When you go through its accounts, I mean, it's blindingly obvious that they were cheating because Patisserie Valerie is a a business that makes very complicated looking, very sophisticated cream cakes. You know, those very intricate designs. And, you know, the, the thing about a cream cake is there's a lot of labor in it and it goes off. So there's a lot of waste. It's expensive to produce and there's a lot of wastage. So the gross margin on selling a product like that isn't very good. And you know that the costs of running a restaurant are pretty stable, pretty constant across the group. You know, if you look at a group of quoted restaurants, there isn't that much variation. In the UK, rent is 10 to 12% of sales. Labor is 35 to 38% of sales. And they're all within that sort of order of magnitude. And what was strange about Patisserie Valerie was it was making the same margins as Starbucks. And Starbucks, you know, it sells coffee. Coffee is the highest gross margin product. Coffee and tea, highest gross margin products you can find. Because what do you need? You need some coffee beans, some electricity, some water, and a person and a yeah. cup. You know, yeah. there's nothing, there's nothing to it. But the cake is much more complicated. And of course, with Starbucks, I don't know what the what the proportion of takeaway is, but it's high, right? Yeah. And in Patisserie Valérie, the proportion of takeaways is very, very, very small. Yeah. So it just was impossible that a small business like Patisserie Valérie, with all the costs of being a public company, could possibly report margins which were as high as Starbucks. It just just didn't stack up. So, you know, my you know, just my second check, the margin comparison, would have immediately made you run a mile because yeah. there's no plausible explanation as to how you could possibly make a 15% margin, same as Starbucks, from selling cake.
0: Yeah, that's and it almost it almost reminds me of Luckin Coffee. Earlier, I think it was yeah, well, late late last year. <laughs> I've not I've not actually I've not actually done any, any work in that. But the, I mean, the,
1: but the inter- interesting thing is, you know, you just think about it. You're selling a, a lower gross margin product that you're selling at the table, so you need much more property. Yep. And you need much more labor and labor and property are almost 50% of sales. So you know, you, it's just, it's a mathematical, I mean, what I keep saying to people is look, beating the stock market's quite difficult, but it's not complicated. The simpler you can make it, the better you'll do. Hmm. And that is to me that, you know, anybody could understand that. I could explain yep. that to my kid. my kids could get that.
0: Yep. Yeah. No, that's, 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 that's so good because it's, 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 it's the idea that beating the market is, is hard, but it's not complex. And those two things aren't the same. Exactly. Yeah. I like it. Let's now go back to the, um, from hedge funds to training and, you know, you left the hedge fund world and you started training analysts. And I want to talk about maybe some of, some of, some of your passions there with training analysts and why you decided to make that move.
1: Oh, I I, I mean, it wasn't a voluntary decision. You know, I loved being a hedge fund analyst. I mean, it was the best job in the world. And I would happily have carried on doing it. Mm -hmm. But the fund I was working for laterally, um, I'd gone in at the start of 2016 to help these guys build their business. And it wasn't very successful uh, for various reasons. And um, in April, the principal called me in and said, I'm going to give it nine more months. And I thought, he's going to close the business down. And um, that's a bit of a problem because I'm a partner in the business and I'll be liable for some of the liabilities. I don't really want that. So I've got to, I've got to get out. And so I started looking for another job. And um, unfortunately, you know, the simple fact of the matter is that the average age of a successful fund manager is 42 years old and they don't want a 50 something analyst looking over their shoulder. So I couldn't get, I mean, I applied for, I think it was 47, 48 jobs and I didn't get a single interview. Hmm. So it came, the conclusion came not quickly, but eventually that I better find something else to do. And I've got, you know, a very deep skill, but in a very narrow field. And so, you know, there isn't much else I could do, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, I could, I, I mean, I guess I could have retrained, but you know, I'm, I'm pretty useless at anything else. I'm good at one thing. You only need to be good at one thing in this life, right? And um, so I, I, somebody came up with the idea. Um, why don't you set up a training business? And it was a friend of mine who ran a team at a big, long only fund. And he said, I've got an analyst who is an ESG analyst, and we need to make them a proper equity analyst, and we need to do it quickly. Can you help? And I like, yeah, I can do that. And then Russell Napier, who is a well-known financial historian and economics commentator, called me up and he said that one of his clients wanted a forensic accounting course built. He couldn't find one. Could I do it? And he introduced me to the client. And there's clients very good client of mine now. Um, really, really nice people. Really thoughtful, interested. I built a forensic accounting course for them. And um, I then said to my first client that... that training client where i'd been doing helping various of their people i said to their cio i think you know this is your guys would benefit from this and he said oh fantastic and so i trained them and then we had a whole string of frauds in the uk and so word started getting around that there was this guy at this really good forensic accounting course and it would help you avoid the frauds (laughs) and so i it just became very popular Yeah. And obviously, you know, over time, you know, every week I'll find something new, a different example, something else. And so, you know, it's continuously updated. And so I've got a, a, you know, I've done a thing I said, 300, but 300 people go through that course. I'm now doing it via Zoom. Quite interesting. My clients in the UK are prefer to wait until they can have it in person. Because obviously it's better in person than it is on Zoom.
0: Yeah,
1: But um, I'm, I'm now starting to do it um, all over the world. So I've been doing people in Singapore, in Bermuda, in the United States. Um, I'm doing a course in Brazil. I'm doing a course in California. I'm doing a course in Israel next week. Wow! No, not in Israel. I'm doing it on Zoom, but yeah. they're they're going to be in the warmth. I'm going to be in the, the cold and rainy London. <laughs> but the the Zoom thing has opened up a whole new avenue of possibilities. I'm very excited about that because the United States is such a big market. Mm-hmm. And of course, the really wonderful thing about that the the US is that the South Side don't know what they're doing. So in Europe, the South Side are pretty bad. But in a, the United States, the South Side is awful. I mean, it is just <laughs> drastic. There are a few firms who are really good mm-hmm. but the vast majority of the analysis is garbage. I mean it is so short-sighted, so short term they don't even read their accounts. I mean I, can, I, I know this for a fact because I've gone and asked for help with issues and none of the US analysts knew what they were doing. I remember I had to I had to um, get one one um, analyst, a bulge bracket firm, who wouldn't actually send me his revised model because he would then have to admit that his model had a massive mistake in it. You know, I said, why are your earnings this number? And I said, this doesn't make sense. And mm-hmm. he, had a, he had an error in the model, and um, which meant his earnings number was 15% up, which is, which is a big error, right? Yeah. And um, he, he told me how to fix it. He didn't send me a new model. He told told me how to fix it. I'm like, why would I ever give you any business at all? i fixed your model for you, and you can't even say thank you, you know? Um, So I'm really excited about the opportunity because the buy side in the United States really needs to do a lot of work, and they need to do a hell of a lot of work in the accounting. And I think this forensic accounting course is going to be really, really popular.
0: So did you start... Yeah. did you did you start the website because your website's behind the balance sheet was that was that before you started the accounting course or was it something as you know hey I'm doing this accounting course I should probably have a web presence
1: Well the, I, I've had a website for um, quite some time and my website's behind sheet.com and the company trades as behind the balance sheet um, because I just thought behind the balance sheet that's what I do right I look through um, the accounts. And um, we've now sort of extended it. So behind the Bouncy, it's just you know, it's an advertising area for our our work. Mm -hmm. But what we've also done is because we're now doing more for the private investors, we've done two things. We've got an online training school, so you can sign up. We do the Analyst Academy, it's a 12 month program. And it basically takes you from being even a novice. We've got some extra modules for novices who don't know anything about accounting or investing Mm -hmm. But for most people, they know a bit about investing, but they want to improve their skills. So we take you right through the first module is how to read the set of accounts. Second module is looking at how to do analysis. The third module is how to value a business. And the fourth module is how to construct and manage a portfolio. And in fact, we're just finishing that now because the first people started that course in February, and we're just finishing it. And we're including a whole section on behavioral finance. Which is really quite yeah. fascinating In fact this morning before I started talking to you, I was just working on that and, and it's a really, really interesting area and i'm working with a great guy who's. Um, a, a coach, because you know I know the theory about this, but the interesting thing about our our training is it's incredibly practical you know it's all about by practitioners for our practitioners. So I didn't want to try and persuade people how to manage their emotions because I'm not a psychiatrist. This guy is a really cool guy. He um, is a failed actor. Hmm. He won the world memory championships. So he can teach you how to remember 27 names. And um, he's an executive coach and I've taken his coaching and he's brilliant. So he's going to teach people, well, okay, so what sort of biases do you suffer from? And how do you manage that? Hmm. So I'm really, I'm really, really excited about working with them. I think it's going to be a really, really fun thing. And then the other thing we've got on the, on the website is we've got what we call the club. So when you sign up to our newsletter, you get entry into the club and we've got a whole bunch of free training there. We've got a a whole section with investor letters. So we've got, we just started with Q2. We've got over a hundred investor letters, including, well, we probably shouldn't have them, but the bio post and, green lights and third point and you know a whole host of really good letters and what i try and do is i try and read the letters and then i summarize the things that i learned Mm -hmm. i read this letter because it's really interesting about this and this and we've got 1500 investing articles and it's all free so you know i'm not trying to make money i'm trying to help people so the all the training all the videos are free and and so on so we've got the paid courses and we've got free free stuff
0: awesome I love it. I love it. And for those, for those that haven't checked out his website, make sure you go check it out behind the balance sheet. Just a lot of good, solid content. Um, Steven, this is, this has been an awesome conversation. I know we're a little bit over an hour. And so, you know, just kind of want to, want to wrap things up for you. I know it's, getting to prime afternoon territory over there for you. And it's almost market open for me. Uh, but where can where can people go to learn more about you? I know we already mentioned your 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 website. Do you have a Twitter? Do you have anything else where people can contact you directly?
1: Yeah, sure. I'm I'm on Twitter at Steve Clapham. Confusingly, the book is by Stephen with a P-H Clapham. I'm on Twitter at Steve Clapham. My website's behindbalance sheet.com and I'm on LinkedIn, linkedin.com stroke behind balance sheet.
0: Awesome. And then finally, the question I ask everybody, and I didn't send you this before, so this is kind of an impromptu thing for you, but if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why?
1: Winston Churchill.
0: Very easy. So good. You
1: know, know, Winston Churchill (laughs) lived the most amazing life, but he is also, you know, one of the most fantastic writers around, brilliant, brilliant writer, and he, he must be the most interesting man to have dinner with that I could possibly imagine. So that would be, I don't even need to think about that one.
0: Yeah, that was instant. Have you read the book Hero of the Empire?
1: No, I've got a whole bunch of his books downstairs. I mean, I, I've not read that one.
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll, send, I'll send you a link. It's about his time during the Boer War, which is really, uh, really interesting. So I'll send you, I mean, I'll send you a link his, for that his,
1: one. His writing is absolutely, I mean, just awesome, just fantastic.
0: Yeah. That's such a such a good answer. Well, Stephen, thanks so much for coming on the show. I look forward to uh, chatting with you soon and best best luck for the book. I hope it I hope it sells a million copies for you. I, I really well, do. If I, it think sells a I think million it's I
1: think. I'll be very surprised. <laughs> I hope it I hope it sells. Thank you so much.
0: Yep. See ya.